0: Alright, uh, if you have your Bible, find Romans chapter 8. I'm excited to uh, begin a study through this chapter with you. We're going to devote about three weeks to Romans 8, um, and we could easily spend a lot longer than that in it. This chapter is, as I put in the group me yesterday when I told you what we're going to be reading, it, this this chapter is like the high watermark of of uh, Romans. Uh, this this one chapter teaches us more about the doctrine of salvation in Christ than almost any other single chapter in in the New Testament, and um, and it's for that reason I think it should be one of the most comforting chapters for you. I wish we could uh, we could dive deeply into every reason for that in this time that we have, but we're just going to be able to hit the high spots, but. I, I really hope over the next three weeks as we study this chapter that you will you will read and reread and reread Romans 8 um, so that you learn it well. Um, well, I hope you were able to read our passage ahead of time. If you, if you saw it, uh, Romans 8, 1 through 11 is going to be our, our passage. Uh, read it ahead of time. Think through it. You'll, you'll get more out of it that way. But uh, either way, let's read it together. And then we're going to dive in and take a closer look at it. So Romans 8, 1 through 11 is our passage. Paul famously begins this chapter saying, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Let's pray. Lord, this, this beautiful passage is your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, Clear, authoritative, and necessary word, and um, Lord, I ask that as we study these, uh, these, this, these beautiful words today from uh, that that just are your 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 mind and your will put down on paper for us, so we study that. Would you please give us eyes to see the truth that that Paul is explaining here under the inspiration of Your Holy Spirit, and would you? In doing that would you illumine us illumine our, our eyes and our illumine our minds to understand clearly what uh, what the Holy Spirit is saying here through Paul and would you give us hearts to embrace uh, and love and and um, yeah just deeply love the truth that we see here um, and Lord would you give us wills to to respond to this word as you would have us to do um, and give us all ears to hear, please give me the help that I do, do need to teach. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Um, I'm telling you, this this chapter is is a chapter worth committing to memory. If you've never memorized this whole chapter, um, do it. I've never done it all the way through, but before it's all said and done, I, Lord willing, I, I, I plan to, and I hope you will too. But if you're taking notes, here's how I want to... To structure our thoughts around the passage we just read today first we're going to look at verses 1 through 4 um, and consider what I'm calling the foundation of the believer the foundation of the believer in verses 1 through 4 uh, so this these opening verses of the chapter begins with this great gospel statement of assurance um, but these these early verses remind us of the finished work of Christ but as well as, the, as the, the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit that together form the foundation for the, the life of a believer. That's verses 1 through 4. The second, verses 5 through 8, we're going to think carefully about the evidence of the believer, the evidence of the believer. What Paul is describing in verses 5 through 8, I think, is, is he's, he's saying what, what should characterize those who are in Christ. The, what should characterize those who have been born again by the Holy Spirit? The evidence that that someone is born again. The evidence that someone is a believer and a follower of Christ. That's verses 5 through 8, the evidence of the believer. And then we're going to come back finally in verses 9 through 11 and think about the what, what I would interpret as the assurance of the believer. The assurance of the believer. Uh, what he's going to say in verses 9 through 11 is not certainly, certainly not everything that could be said about the assurance of a believer, but he gives a good dose of it in those verses. And that's on top of what, what assurance you should gain also from thinking about the foundation that we have in, in the early verses. So that's where we want to start on the foundation, and let's begin at the beginning. Um, go back to verse 1. Paul begins this chapter with a conjunction. Therefore, there is therefore... Now, no condemnation. Therefore just means that he's about to uh, say, what, what he's about to say is, is a conclusion. He's drawing a conclusion uh, based on something he just finished saying. Um, that's what the word therefore functions as. I am hungry, therefore I will eat. Now, that sounds silly if you talk like that, but you get the point. And that's what he's doing here. What's he, what has he just said? If you think back to last. Sunday if you think back to chapter seven remember I said in chapter seven Paul was was uh, as I argued Paul is thinking back to his life as a Pharisee before he came to Christ and he's thinking back to his inability to keep the law as hard as he tried remember it he he, he, he said you know I, I keep doing the th- the thing that I know is wrong and what I what I want to do I don't do what I know I shouldn't do I do and he just his wrestling, as a, thinking back to his life as an unbeliever, his desire to, to be good and obey and earn the favor of God, and he can't do it through his own efforts. And remember how he ended that chapter in verse 24 with, the, with this cry, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death and 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 so that's that's the that's the climactic conclusion of his life as an unbeliever who who can deliver me from this and he simply says in verse 25 of chapter 7 thanks be to god through jesus christ our lord now anybody who had been reading this letter from the beginning would know what he's talking about in verse 25 he's he thanks be to god through Jesus Christ our Lord, he's, our, he's sort of bringing you back now to all that he said from the end of chapter 3 all the way through chapter 6 about justification by faith and, 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 and the Holy Spirit within us to help us walk in holiness. You know, Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God, he says in chapter 7, verse 25, through Jesus Christ our Lord. But but as you come into chapter 8, in verses 1 and 4, he's going to summarize again why thanks is due to God uh, for the deliverance that Christ has given to wretched sinners. And in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 8, as I said, he's describing the foundation of this thanksgiving that we owe to God, the foundation of our deliverance and salvation in Christ. And if you read these verses carefully, verses one through four, he actually lays down a twofold foundation, a twofold foundation, um, and one of them is objective, and the other one is subjective. Now, let me try to explain what I mean by that. What I mean by objective is is that that's that's an aspect of our foundation as believers, that is outside of us. It's outside of us. That objective foundation is found outside of me, okay? Um, Which would mean then that the subjective foundation is the aspect of my foundation as a believer that is found inside of me, okay? Um, And if that is still clear as mud, let's just go to the text and hopefully you'll see what I mean. First, the objective foundation foundation, which is outside of us. Look again at verse one. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now draw your attention to that last phrase for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you see in that phrase alone what I mean by objective being outside of you as a believer, you are in Christ. You are in another, right? And why is that a sure foundation? Paul lays that down in verse 3 because it says, he says, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, and he continues in verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That is something that Christ did for you, right? That, that's based on nothing about you. That's not based on Uh, your worthiness or your goodness or what you deserve or what you've done or failed to do, but by his free grace alone, another outside of you doing something for you, right? And Paul says in verse 3 that Christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh, in the likeness of it, not a sinner himself, but coming as a substitute, For sinners, which is why it also says, and for sin. In the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin. Coming coming in the likeness of sinful flesh, not himself a sinner, but for sinners. For sin. Right? Perfect. When it says, in the likeness of sinful flesh, that's reminding us that he was perfectly obedient to the law. But also reminds us of his perfectly atoning death when it says, and for sin. So Paul says in these opening verses, through, through his perfectly obedient life and through his substitutionary atoning death, he condemned, to use his word, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now, what does that mean? When he says in verse uh, 3, he condemned sin in the flesh, what does that mean? What does it mean to condemn sin? It, 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 it means that because of what Jesus has done in his life, death, and resurrection, he has reversed the curse against us he's reversed the curse Uh, sin rightly condemns us because we're sinners sin condemns us it has a case against us and it wins because we're sinners but when jesus christ came as our substitute and took our place the righteous for the unrighteous the basis for that accusation against us has now been removed and sin can no longer condemn us. It no longer has a case because the righteous has taken my place. Because as he says in the next verse, he says, he amplifies that, he says that the righteous requirement of the law has now been fulfilled in us because Jesus fulfilled it for us objectively, objectively, as if we'd never sinned as if we had already been righteous at every point. Therefore now, sin has no claim. It is condemned. That's the objective aspect of our foundation as believers. It's found outside of us, in another, in Jesus Christ. That that is something that cannot be undone. That, That is something that a sinner who has repented of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ, a sinner can no longer be condemned by sin any more than Jesus of Nazareth can be put back in the tomb, right? That's why he can say in verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's done objectively for us. But there's a second aspect to our foundation here that is subjective. If objective is something that, that, is, that is outside of us, subjective means there's another aspect that's going on inside of us. right? And Paul says that, that there is something like that for everyone who is in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 2 again. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So you can see that this is true for everyone, it says, who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So, so what is it? If the first aspect of our foundation as believers was the removal of the penalty of our sin because of the objective work of Jesus Christ, the second aspect of our foundation as believers is the victory over the power of sin through the subjective work of the Holy Spirit at work within believers, right? What, what he's saying in verse 2 is that before Christ, which also means before we had the Holy Spirit, right? He says the law of sin and death was at work in us. The law of sin and death was at work. And that's what he explained, by the way, in chapters 1 through 3. It's what he reiterated in chapter 7, that's why he said, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? To say it in the words of Romans 3, all have sinned, like no one seeks after God, no one does good, not even one. So yes, in Christ Jesus, we have been set free from the penalty of that reality, but here he is saying that there is a new law at work in you as a believer that has set you free from that Inward law of sin and death, which controlled you before Christ. And that, new, and that new law that is at work in you is what he calls in verse 2, the law of the spirit of life. The law, the spirit of life. It's the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit of God in you who enables you inwardly to walk in obedience uh, to, to, to God's will and in a way that's pleasing to him in a way that you formerly could not do. Right? The way he says it again in verse 4 is that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who, who walk not according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. Yeah, Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law for us, but now the Holy Spirit fulfills the righteous requirement of the law in us by enabling us to fight against sin and to walk in obedience to the will of God. That is our foundation of, as believers. Christ has delivered us from the penalty of our sin, and, be, and because of what Christ has done in His life, death, and resurrection, the Holy Spirit is now delivering us from the power of sin. One is objective, the other is subjective, but both are permanent and unchangeable and unshakable. We're going to see that even more firmly toward the end of our passage. But as we keep progressing through this passage, um, Paul moves on, having laid that foundation, that twofold fold foundation of, of the objective work of Christ and the subjective work of the Holy Spirit. He moves on, having laid that foundation, to describe what I'm calling the evidence of the believer in verses 5 through 8. Think about that with me. So it seems like Paul is building on that, subjective foundation we talked about, the subjective foundation of the Holy Spirit in us. How do we know that? How do we know he's, he's um, built, he, when he talked about the, the, the Holy Spirit, that inward work, how do we know he's building on that aspect in verses 5 through 8? I think we can see that in verse 5, if you're looking at verse 5, in that phrase, those who live according to the Spirit. That's I mean, it says, uh, yeah, in the middle of the verse, those who live according to the Spirit. Think about that one phrase. I think that phrase, those who live according to the Spirit, is connected to two things he said in verses 2 and 4. First of all, notice that back in verse 2, he referred to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of life, the Spirit of life. And in verse 5, he says those who live according to the Holy Spirit. Those who live. So you got life and live. The whole, the, that, that connection. But then, second of all, in verse four, he talked about those who walk according to the spirit, which I think is just a different stated differently in the next verse is those who live according to the spirit. Those who live, those who walk, different ways of saying the same thing. All that to say it seems pretty clear that what he's about to describe in verses 5 through 8 is amplifying what he first mentioned in verses 1 through 4 about the subjective foundation of the Holy Spirit at work in a believer and he's about to describe the subjective that is in me evidence the subjective evidence in a believer of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit at work and what Paul seems to point to as evidence in a believer is the new mindset, the new orientation present in believers. I don't know if you noticed when we read read verses 5 through 8, but Paul in these these verses, 5 through 8, Paul refers to the mind seven times. Seven times. In verse 5, he uses the phrase, set their minds, twice. In verse 6, he uses the phrase, set the mind. In ver- and he says that twice in verse 6. In verse 7, the mind that is set on. And then also in verse 7, he refers to the mind by use of the pronoun it twice in verse 7. And so what he's saying is that before Christ... When we lived according to the flesh, or as he'll put it in verses 8 and 9, when we were in the flesh, the evidence of that was we had a mind set on the flesh. That's verse 7. Verse 5 says, we set our minds on the things of the flesh. Verse 7, we were hostile to God in our minds, not wanting to submit to God, or His will in any way, not caring at all about that, not able to submit because we didn't want to submit. In our minds. That's before Christ. But He is saying that for the believer, the whole orientation has changed. He says that the believer now, according to verse 6, He says the believer sets their mind on the Spirit. Verse 5 says uh, the believer sets their mind on the things of the Spirit. Do you see that? Verse 5, those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Verse 6 is said, to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. What does that mean? What does it mean for you to set your mind on the Spirit? What does it mean, what does verse 5 mean when it says, if you live according to the Spirit, which means if you're a believer, you set your mind on the things of the Spirit. What is that? What are the things of the Spirit? Well, here's how I would summarize it, and then we're going di- to take a, a deeper dive into some other passages to try to confirm what we're saying. I think when, when he says, set your mind on the Spirit and the things of the Spirit, I think on the, on, most simply it just means that there is now an awareness and a desire to think and understand what God thinks. And to seek the things that God would have us to seek. And to do the things that are pleasing to God. That's, just a, that's a different way of saying that. To, th- to set your mind on the Spirit and the things of the Spirit is just an awareness. It's a, it's a, it's a new awareness. It's a desire to think the, like God thinks and understand things the way God understands things. And see them the way He sees them. And to do what He would have me to do. And live according to what He says. That's what it means. And Paul isn't talking about sinless perfection here. He's just talking about a new orientation to your life that wasn't there before. But again, let's get, let's get more specific. What does it mean to set your mind on the Spirit and on the things of the Spirit? I think there are a few other passages that, of Scripture that can help us here. So hold your place here in Romans 8, and, uh, and let's look at a few other passages very quickly. First... Setting your mind on the Spirit and the things of the Spirit simply means it's a, it's a mindset to want what God wants it, it, and to see things as God sees them, to think like God thinks. And I think we see this in a couple of other passages. Turn first to Matthew 16. Matthew chapter 16. And in this chapter, this is a, Matthew 16 is probably a familiar passage uh, to you more than likely. It's, it's in Matthew 16 where Jesus goes to his disciples and say, who do the crowd say that I am? And then he says, well, who do you say that I am? And it's when he, when he says, who do you say that I am? It's that then Peter stands up, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, you know, God has revealed that to you, Simon. Uh, but what does, uh, but, but it's after Peter says you are the Christ, beginning in verse 21, that's when uh, Jesus um foretells his death and his resurrection and, and he says, I'm gonna suffer many things and, and I'm gonna be killed and on the third day I'm gonna rise. He says that. And it's when he says that Peter speaks up and he in opposition to Jesus. Nuh uh like I mean he's like that's not gonna to happen to you, Jesus. What does Jesus say to Peter in reply in verse twenty three? But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, what is he saying? Simply that Peter was not seeing things like God saw them. He was not trying to understand God's purpose in why Jesus might suffer and die. And in so doing, he was being a hindrance to Christ. He was was thinking only in an earthly way. I love you, Jesus. I don't want you to die. He was not thinking God has a purpose in this. He wasn't setting his mind on that. But in a similar way now, turn over to Colossians 3. Colossians 3. Um, Again, remember we're saying that, that to set your mind on the Spirit is to just see things the way God sees them, to think the way God thinks, to desire what God desires, and so that you live accordingly. When you, We see that confirmed again. We saw it in Peter, in what Jesus said to Peter, but we also see it in what Paul says to the Colossians in Colossians 3. When you get to Colossians 3, look with me at verses 1 and 2. Notice what Paul says there. If then you have been raised with Christ. That just means if you are a believer. Seek the things, the things that, that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of god set your minds on the things that are above not on things that are on earth there it's just an understanding that my sinful nature will be prone to think a certain way and to see things a certain way and it's not how god would do it and if we've been raised with christ he's saying in colossians 3 we have a new orientation to set our minds on god and his will in His ways, and His wisdom. All of that are just different ways of saying what He says in Romans 8, 6 is to set the mind on the Spirit, right? It's to think like the Spirit would have us, to desire the things the way the Spirit of God sees them so we can please God in the power of the Holy Spirit. But that leads me to one other passage that I want us to see before we come back to Romans 8. Because it's not just and it's not enough. If we just say to, to set your mind on the Spirit means see things the way God sees them. Desire what God desires. Uh, understand his ways and his will. It's not enough if that's all we say. Because how do you do that? Right? How do you do that? And it's, it's a reminder that Paul didn't just say, set your mind on the on the spirit he said set your mind on the things of the spirit because if we don't do that we're just left to our own imaginations which are not very trusty and so to use paul's language from romans 8 what are the things of the spirit that he says to set your mind on and to see that turn over to 1 corinthians chapter 2 this is the only other time in the new testament that paul uses the phrase things of the spirit Okay, so assuming Paul isn't dumb and assuming he means the same thing when he uses the same words more than once, I think 1 Corinthians 2 can help us understand what the things of the Spirit are. If, if, in, if in Romans 8 5 he says, Set your mind on the things of the Spirit, what's that? And in, 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 in we find that phrase, things of the Spirit, In 1 Corinthians 2.14, look at verse 14. He says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, that is, the things of the Spirit of God, because they are spiritually discerned. Okay, the natural person is an unbeliever. And he says in that verse, the unbeliever cannot understand the things of the Spirit because he needs the Spirit's help to understand them but what are they? What are these things of the Spirit that the the, the unbeliever cannot understand without the Spirit's help? Well, look at the verses right before it, and I think we can build up to what it is. Look back at verse 10. In verse 10, he refers to these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. What are these things? In verse 11, he, he, he says these things are the thoughts of God right? We are not, uh, so verse, uh, oh, I'm in, I'm, man, I'm totally in the wrong book. Um, yeah, 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 verse 11, right? No one comprehends the thoughts of God. So what the, when he says in verse 10, these things that God has revealed to us, verse 11 says, these things are the thoughts of God. But how can we know the thoughts of God? Well, verse 12 says, these things have been freely given to us by God. Okay, so we can know them because it says they've been freely given to us, but how? Verse 13 says they are imparted to us in words, not taught by human wisdom, but by the Spirit. The things of the Spirit are words taught by the Spirit. What might be the words that have been taught by the Spirit? The Scriptures right Paul says in 2 Timothy three sixteen, all Scripture is breathed out by God and Peter says in 1 Peter 121 or 2nd Peter 121 that Scripture was written down because why men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit so the things of the Spirit are the words of the Spirit the Scriptures breathed out by God, words of the Holy Spirit written down for us, and as you go back to Romans 8 verse 5, Paul says, set your minds on that. Set your mind on it. And I think we're now in a better place to understand what he sees. When he says, set your mind on the Spirit and set your mind on the Holy Spirit, uh, yeah, so it's not just like when you say desire what God desires, see things the way God sees them, want what God wants, understand. Think think long about his ways and his will. How do you do that? In his wisdom, how do you do that? By setting your mind on this. Setting your mind on that. He's saying in verses 5 through 8 of chapter 8 that the evidence uh, that a believer has the Holy Spirit is the whole orientation change in their mindset. That there's now a desire previously impossible to know God through his word and to bring our own thoughts and our own actions into conformity with what the scripture says so that in thought and indeed we can be in every way pleasing to God. He says at the end of verse 6 that the believer knows that this is life and peace. And it's more satisfying than desi- than more satisfying than following the desires of our flesh. And again Paul is not saying that This is now going to be the constant, unfailing, moment by moment, without fail, mindset, every moment of every day. No, we still battle our flesh. We still battle the desires of our flesh. But here's the the key. A believer cannot stay in that place indefinitely and be unbothered by it. Right? The Holy Spirit will bring... His word to our memory to help us see our sin as He sees it and bring us a holy discomfort with it so that we repent according to His will and then bring our actions into conformity with His will. Increasing sanctification accomplished as we daily set our minds on the things of the Spirit, Scripture, and seek to walk in obedience to it. It's not always a straight line. It's not like... It's not like you're born again here, and it's just a straight line of sanctification the rest of your life. It, that's not the way it looks on the graph of your life. Uh, Paul Miller wrote a book called The J-Curve. Some of you may have read that, but he says if you looked at the graph of a believer's sanctification, it, it's, like, it's called the J-Curve. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a constant J-Curve of failing, repenting, dying, and rising, failing, and repenting, and rising, failing, and repenting, and rising. It's just, it's that over and over again because all this lifelong in our, in, in this body, we're going to battle the flesh. But the evidence of a believer is that we don't, we don't fail and stay down there. We repent and rise. And we can continue to do that with hope because of that objective foundation we have in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit enables all of this. It won't happen though apart from the word. It will not happen apart from the Word. Scripture Scripture is the voice of the Holy Spirit into your mind and heart. And it's the only, it's the only word that can be spoken into your mind and heart um, that gives life. That gives life to make you more like Christ. Um, endless scrolling on social media is not life-giving. What are we putting into our minds? Be careful where you're setting your mind throughout your days. But Paul knows that believers can still feel like um, the power of their flesh is so st- still so strong that sometimes believers can, can despair of the evidence or their perceived lack thereof that they see in their lives. And there are a couple of things I would say to that. One is, um, is if, if, you're, if you're that person, and you, you say, gosh, I'm looking for evidence in my life and I just, ugh, I don't, I don't feel like I see enough and I'm disturbed by that. Well, one thing is, if there were no life in you, and no presence of the Holy Spirit in you, your perceived lack of evidence wouldn't bother you. It just wouldn't bother you. Because Paul says those who are in the flesh only think about the flesh. They only think about earthly things. Their their minds are hostile to God. They can't please God. They don't want to please God. You wouldn't be bothered by it. But the other thing to say here is that is what Paul says in these final verses about the assurance of the believer in verses 9 through 11. These are the most tongue-twisty verses of the whole passage. And we could spend a long time parsing everything that Paul says in verses 9 through 11 because it's all so very encouraging. But because we need to wrap this up in the next couple of minutes, I just want to point out two assurances Two assurances that Paul gives in verses 9 through 11 to every believer. And again, he says far more than this, but he doesn't say less than this. All right? Here are the two assurances that he gives. And I'll go ahead and tell you what they are and then try to show you what, show them in the text. One is this, and they're very similar. One is our salvation is a work of our triune God. Our salvation is a work of our triune God. That's assurance number one. Our salvation is a work of our triune God. And the second one is like it. Our salvation is a complete work of our triune God. It's a complete work of our triune God. Let's try to see each of those very quickly in the text. First, this first assurance that our salvation is a work of our triune God. This is an assurance in the sense that it's not just a promise, even as assuring as that would be but it's an action in progress of all three persons of the godhead. Notice how Paul notice how Paul refers to the holy spirit throughout these last verses. In verse 9, he calls him the spirit of god. But then in the same breath he calls him the spirit of Christ. And then notice also that in in notice by the way in verses 1 and 2 how he says those those who are in Christ Jesus, he says it twice, set you free in Christ Jesus. Notice in verse 9, he now says uh, that believers are in the Spirit. So to be in Christ and in the Spirit, same thing. Two ways of saying the same thing, because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. And then in verse 11, he, uh, he, he says, he refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead, meaning that's the Father, as he's referring to. So the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of the Father and the Son in this passage. But now notice he says in verse 9, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, then in verse 10 he says, but if Christ is in you, for the Spirit to dwell in you is for Christ to dwell in you, and now notice in verse 11 that because the Holy Spirit dwells in us, it is the Father, the same who raised Jesus from the dead, who will raise us. But notice He will do it through His Spirit who dwells in you. I mean, it's just... Blah, 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 blah. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit just all... Just, there's, a, there's fancy words for that, but man, it's amazing. The point is, every person of the Godhead is at work in your salvation. Like... The Spirit is not at work in you to earn the favor of Christ, but to apply to your life the favor that you already have because He earned it. And the, and Christ is is not still trying to hold back the Father's anger against us because it's It's not just the wrath of the Father. It was the wrath of the triune God that Jesus bore on the cross, and it's already been satisfied. And so now it's the Father along with the Son and the Spirit who decreed your salvation in eternity past, which means Christ then came in time and space to earn it and the Spirit then to apply it to your life, and one day you'll be raised. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all working for your salvation and for your eternal good. And all that to say is, is that is our salvation is not just a work of salvation uh, of the triune god it's that second assurance it's a complete work of your triune god because paul ends this passage making clear that it's not just that our salvation it's not just our salvation from things past but our hope for eternity future notice he says that it's not just the legal verdict of our that our sins have been forgiven but he says in verse 11 that the day is coming when we will be delivered from the very presence of sin, just as we have already been delivered from the penalty and the power. How does he say that? When he says in verse 10 that even though our bodies will still die because of the sin and the fall, God has promised in verse 11 that one day he will raise us to eternal life, giving life to your mortal bodies, where sin and even the temptation to it will be no more. And as we close... I just want you to notice that in our passage today, verses 1 through 11, notice that 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 little section on the evidence of our salvation, verses 5 through 8, is sandwiched between the sure foundation of verses 1 and 4 and the double assurance of verses 9 through 11. When we're disheartened by the continual struggle to walk in holiness and Christ-likeness, this passage as the whole chapter is going to be, is a reminder that grace is greater than all of our sin. So let's pray, and then we'll have to be done.